0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I have the immense pleasure of receiving Dr. Thornhill again on the show for the second time. He already appeared the first time where we talked basically about the evolutionary basis of rape. As a reproductive strategy. Uh, by the way, for, for those of us who don't know him yet, he's a professor of biology at the University of New Mexico. But I really suggest that you go and check out our first interview because it's very interesting. And there I give you further information on Dr. Thornhill uh, and other things as well. And so I I decided to invite Dr. Thornhill a second time on the show because last time after the interview, we talked a little bit more. And because I've already had Dr. Richard Nisbet on the show, eventually our conversation was led to uh, uh, some of his theories about... Cultures of honor and the differences between uh, the Northern and the Southern uh, Americans uh, uh, and the, the differences between them in terms of violence and laws and other stuff like that. And so Dr. Thornhill uh, the, in his work talks about the influence the, that parasite stress might have in certain aspects of human culture and in different cultures cultures and so we're we're here today basically to talk about that. So, Dr. Thornhill, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show again. My pleasure, Ricardo. Glad to be here. Oh, great. So, first of all, uh, I think it would be better for people to have uh, at least a notion of what we're talking about here. So, could you please tell us what is the parasite stress theory of values and sociality about?
1: Yes, the parasite stress theory of values is a scientific theory about how people uh, get their values, that is, what causes uh, people's values. And I'll explain what values, what, what I mean by values in a minute, but it's a, uh, it's a uh, proximate and evolutionary scientific theory of how we come by our core values. And basically, our core values are are really what we want and need uh, in life. Uh, On the proximate causal time scale, what we think is is going on is that as people grow up, as kids grow up, they encounter varying varying levels of infectious disease. There's variation in this, and so some kids uh, experience uh, more infectious diseases growing up than others, and information about infectious diseases in the culture that these kids are growing up in. Uh, Some kids have uh, highly activated immune systems as they're growing up because of uh, local infectious disease levels are high. Other kids not, and that affects the, these encounters with infectious disease and in basic information about infectious disease in the culture that the kids are growing up with uh, affects the values that the kids uh, acquire, and it's a strategic acquisition of values. So that if you uh, if you're a kid growing up in high infectious disease areas, then you acquire values that protect you against infectious disease. If you're growing up under low infectious disease, then you don't need those values. And basically, the values of interest here are on a dimension, a continuous, uh, it's a continuous variable on a dimension. And the values are, Talked about in two different ways, depending upon the uh, area of scholarship you're 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 referring to, and in political science, political scientists talk about these Corvés of people on the conservatism-liberalism dimension. So uh, way you know, way over on the right, uh, highly conservative, and way over on the left, uh, highly liberal, and it's a continuous. Uh, dimension of, of value. So you can place uh, political scientists have uh, worked hard to come up with validated ways to measure individuals' uh, values. You can measure an individual's values and put them on that dimension of values. And it works for groups and you can get average values for, uh, for states of the United States, average values for countries of the world and so forth. Political scientists have done that. Also, uh, from cultural uh, psychology, cross-cultural psychology, particularly, the, va- the same values basically are called collectivism and individualism. Collectivism being conservatism, and individualism being uh, liberalism. So those are those are the dimensions of values. And basically, uh, if you take conservatism first, and, and uh, values have received a lot of a lot of uh, attention from researchers because, uh, well, first of all, they're so important in human in human life, and our values, our core values, affect basically everything we do. They're they're fundamentally our wants and our needs, and uh, so there's been a lot of research, descriptive research on on values, how to measure values, and so forth, and which values correlate with with other values, and so forth. Tremendous amount of research. And that, that research history has is very interesting, too. Uh, we can get to that later, uh, when there were big increases in the research on values and so forth that are interesting. But uh, basically, the, the if you take conservatism first, the fundamental parts of conservatism are as follows. You have xenophobia as part of uh, conservatism. And xenophobia is uh, fear of outsiders, fear of foreigners, fear of people different from you, fear and avoidance, uh, and fear all the way to hate uh, of people with extreme xenophobia to the point you want to kill them. You don't uh, want to be around them and so forth. High xenophobia. And xenophobia is a a continuous variable. It varies uh, among individuals. Uh, And the more conservative a person is, the more xenophobic. The person is. That's one fundamental part of conservatism. Another part of conservatism is uh, an in-group uh, focus, what, uh, what scholars call ethnocentrism, so a focus on local in-group people, preference for social interaction with people like you. They're in-group. They have the same values. They have the same language and dialect and appearance and so forth and so on. That kind of uh, value system is ethnocentrism. And the higher that is, the more conservative a person is. Another core value of uh, conservatism is what biologists call philopatry. And it's love of uh, where you grow up, basically. You just stay put. You don't disperse. Um, Then, so that's, that's basically conservatism. Then if you uh, well, one more thing I would add there too is uh, traditionalism. So you're tr- you like traditional things, you want things, uh, you want the status quo to remain. That's very much a part of, of conservatism too. And that's avoiding new. So neophobia uh, is uh, often uh, used to describe that. And it's really part of xenophobia because neophobia, new ideas and so forth come from the outside. So you're avoiding you're avoiding outsiders again with neophobia, disliking new ideas and ways and so forth. So if we ta- if we ta- take that and contrast it with the other pole of the values dimension, the liberalism pole, uh, you have uh, people liberal uh, people are xenophilic. That is, they like foreigners and people that are different from them. And again, degree of liberalism predicts degree of uh, xenophilic. How xenophilic a person is. People, uh, liberal people are fine with people that look different, speak different, different colors, uh, have different values and so forth. More open to uh, foreigners and people that are different than them. Uh, the ethnocentrism component differs too strongly between conservatives and liberals. Liberals, uh, instead of uh, being an in-group focus, they're uh, they're outgroup specialists, so they, they're focusing on people that are different from them, and so forth. So, low ethnocentrism in uh, liberal people, and uh, in terms of dispersal, liberals are move around a lot. They don't mind uh, uh, moving around and traveling and uh, to new places and uh, adventure and uh, all that kind of stuff. Frontier spirit, uh, as some would call it. Uh, so, and, and so those are basically the different, the core differences. And, and uh, liberals also are much more open to new, uh, to new experiences, uh, new ways of doing things, and so forth. So less conformity and less traditionalism in liberals. So what conservatism does uh, from the standpoint of the parasite stress theory of values is that it protects one from infectious disease, so it's strategic optimal under high infectious disease to adopt conservative values, because the xenophobia, uh, it protects you from uh, diseases from the outside, carried by farmers, uh, foreigners, uh, people outside your in-group. That's what the xenophobia does. The ethnocentrism gives you all that local social support uh, when uh, diseases come. And the philopatry is associated with avoiding Distant habitats that would have diseases you're not uh, immune to, and fundamentally, the uh, parasite stress theory of values rests on uh, basic ecology and evolution of infectious disease. And let me explain that briefly. So the way the way uh, disease host interactions work is they uh, they coevolve. So. Hosts are co-evolving with their infectious diseases. Infectious diseases are co-evolving with their host. It's continuous, non-ending, and it's an arms race, an evolutionary arms race. So hosts are evolving defenses against infectious diseases. Infectious diseases are evolving to eat the host despite those defenses, circumvent those defenses. And this phenomenon occurs on a very local level so that you get a, a geographic localization of immunity to infectious disease. So we, we are relatively immune to local infectious diseases, but not immune to diseases from over there, outside the, the local area. And that's why xenophobia is so important uh, in high infectious disease areas, that component of conservatism. It's why ethnocentrism is also important. In areas of high infectious disease, you have all the social support. When diseases come, you can count on your uh, in group members to take care of you and your family. And why philopatry is so important. Under high infectious disease, you avoid dispersal into habitats that would have diseases you're not immune to. So it's very much, uh, very much rests on the basic ecology and evolution of infectious diseases. Um, So that's basically. The parasite stress theory of values and we've tested this uh, theory and uh, we, we started uh, coming up with this and now about 14 years ago and uh, by 2008 we published a number of papers in the scientific literature and we continue to do that and we continue that research now but we've tested this in, in lots of different ways so basically um, if you, if you just take infectious disease number, number of infectious diseases, that's one variable. And that variable uh, correlates very highly with the severity of infectious disease. Uh, severity of infectious disease is the rate of infectious disease in an area, the proportion of people that have infectious diseases. And these infectious disease data are available from uh, outfits like the World Health Organization and other sources that keep uh, continuous monitoring of infectious diseases across countries of the world. And then uh, the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia uh, keeps track of infectious disease levels across states of the United States. So we have these wonderful data uh, on humans or number of infectious diseases and the severity of infectious diseases. And those two variables are very highly correlated. So if you've got a lot of infectious diseases in the area, you got high severity and so forth. But you can take either variable and then uh, look at that uh, variable in relation to the core value systems of people across countries of the world and across states of the U.S. And um, these, these data on core values were not collected uh, by us for the most part. They were collected by cross-cultural psychologists and political scientists. So those are in the literature for countries of the world and states of the U.S. So we put those together. We put infectious disease levels across countries of the world and across states of the uh, U.S. and find that they are very predictive of the core value systems across countries of the world and across states of the U.S., So as infectious disease increases uh, across these regions, whether countries or states, uh, conservatism increases. Said differently, uh, collectivism increases, uh, if you're using that variable, which which basically corresponds to conservatism. So as infectious disease level declines, uh, liberalism or individualism increases across countries of the world and across states of the U.S. So we, had, uh, we provided evidence that we, uh, that we uh, now have a, uh, an understanding, scientific understanding, causes of uh, these core value systems that have been important in political science and cross-cultural psychology. That's one way we have, uh, we have looked at it. And uh, others, so once we started publishing this, other researchers uh, jumped in and started doing various kinds of uh, research projects, and um, including at the individual level. So you can take, so this, what I just described, is comparative evidence across countries and across states about value systems in relation to infectious disease levels. But then uh, uh, experimental psychologists got involved, And uh, you take people into the laboratory and you show them cues of uh, infectious disease in a slideshow, say 10 slides. And these slides are uh, of a person with skin pox or uh, or, uh, 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 a person sneezing or dirty toilets or those kinds of cues of immediate parasite threat. And what happens is these people become more conservative immediately, more ethnocentric, uh, more xenophobic, uh, and uh, personality changes, too, in a way that uh, is consistent with the parasite stress theory of values. It provides provides basically an understanding of personality variation, too. We can get into that uh, later, like extroversion, introversion. agreeableness, uh, disagreeableness, uh, and, uh, openness,
0: openness to experience, right? Pardon me? Uh, openness to experience. Yeah,
1: that's, a, that's a fundamental personality thing. And openness is uh, to new experiences is associated very strongly with liberalism. That's been known a long time. And that personality trait and open a uh, closed, you know, closed mindedness, uh, avoiding new experiences of neophobia, basically. Neophobia, fear of new, is associated with conservatism. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and you can change a person's personality in the lab just by showing them the slideshow I mentioned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you got that at the individual level working. uh, That kind of research we didn't do that. Others have done that, and it continues. Uh, You look at uh, you know show people these cues of immediate uh, threat of parasites. And uh, you get changes in their value system immediately and personality immediately. The, uh, the, so you know and, and these this research has got has had has used uh, good controls too. So you know you show people cues of parasite threat. so maybe they're just changing their personality or values because there's some threat, any threat, right? But they've used other threats. Uh, That's show them slides of other kinds of threats, and people don't shift. It's specific. Uh, these shifts are specific to getting more conservative, specific to uh, threats of parasites. So, that, that research is very cool. Yeah. And then lots of other research directions, too. People look at, so if you show people the slides of parasite threat, their uh, values change in ways that would make them protective against parasites. But also, they have uh, their classical, what we call the classical immune system, uh, increases too. Certain aspects of that kick in. Uh, we, you know, we distinguish two kinds of people have two, two immune systems. They have the classical immune system, which is the old immune system first described by biologists and researched most. It's the T cells and thymus and uh, all that stuff. Uh, that you hear uh, fundamentally about in immunology courses at university. But the behavioral immune system is the behavioral and psychological features that are as important as the classical immune system in dealing with infectious disease and values are part of this behavioral immune system.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've said a lot of things, Dr. Thornhill, and we have to unpack them individually. But but just before we go through which of them individually, let's just take a step back just for people... To get a um, wider picture of all of this, because I mean, isn't it true that all of these, and we're to- we're talking here specifically about exposure to pathogens and infection, but there are many other environmental cues. But uh, th- does this all start from the from the observation that? Uh, Our minds also uh, also are the result of natural selection and also have adaptations. And then when we are exposed to certain environmental cues, in this case... Uh, parasites and pathogens and infection, then according to the levels of pathogens in the environment we live in, uh, our cognitive systems perhaps uh, attune to to those cues and and are influenced by it, and and that's, uh, that's at the basis of why we develop certain cultural structures, why we prefer certain political systems, uh, why perhaps in certain countries or in certain regions people tend to have uh, a higher prevalence of certain personality traits and all of those things, right? Because, I mean, there are people, particularly the more uh, environmentally minded people, let's say, that tend to think that uh, all of people's behavior Uh, In their culture and in their society, all of it comes from socio-cultural factors that have an influence in how they think and how they behave. But I mean, even culture is not something that we can separate from our biology and it doesn't vary independently from some biological aspects and it also doesn't vary randomly.
1: Right. 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 Yes. Uh, I'm glad you brought all that up. The uh, uh, so let me go back a little bit and then and then deal and deal with those important points. So the um, the parasite stress theory of values is an ecological or proximate theory of values. That is, uh, it deals with the causes within an individual's lifetime that, uh, that uh, bring about his or her values, the proximate level, uh, and that's exposure to infectious diseases and information and so forth that I talked about. But also, the theory is an evolutionary ultimate uh, theory of uh, how we get our values. And where that comes in was uh, addressed by your comment. And so the way the way culture acquisition works is, I mean, the modern theory of how we get our culture, basically, uh, how we get our cultural information, is that evolution by uh, natural selection has built psychological adaptations that function, that are specialized to function in the acquisition of cultural items that deal with local adversity, uh, that impact local fitness effects. So, uh, uh, ancestrally, these uh, the, uh, these mechanisms were adaptive in human ancestral environments because these uh, psychological mechanisms uh, guided the adoption of cultural items that work against uh, that work to deal to solve local adversity. And a good uh, obvious example of that is language acquisition. So we acquire the language. Uh, that is locally effective. okay that deals with local adversity so we acquire the language and even the dialect that uh is important for communication locally when we in the culture we grew up in and all other culture acquisition works that way that's why we have culture uh, acquisition in the first place it deals with uh, these these adaptations of culture acquisition are effective in dealing with uh solving problems of local adversity. You pull in information selectively, your cultural items. You build your cultural repertoire with items that work against local adversity. And it's the same with values. So you're going through life. And you know, when you're a kid, you acquire the local dialect and so forth, because that's the social best social strategy for communicating with people around you. That's a language. You also acquire these values that that are uh, effective against whatever the local disease adversity is. So that's the ultimate. Uh, part of the, the parasite stress theory about the evolutionary so evolution by natural selection has built psychological uh, adaptations that's, that specialize in the acquisition of values that work locally to solve adversity uh, indeed and then so 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 then you 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 mentioned to uh, the bigger picture of social structures and all that kind of stuff uh, we, I mentioned that you can take people into the laboratory and with slides change their uh, values and personality and so forth, these, these parasite cues. But also on, personal, on the personality uh, dimension, uh, we have looked, and others now too have looked, uh, cross-nationally. Uh, at uh, personality variation. So personality psychologists have described personality differences across basically all the countries of the world. Those data are in the literature. And uh, so we, sh- we pulled those data on personality variation across countries and showed that, uh, showed that uh, conservatism or collectivism and uh, infectious disease levels are very predictive. Of uh, the personality data that have been collected by personality psychologists, and other aspects of social structure, economics, uh, economic stuff, uh, we've looked at. We uh, call it the parasite stress theory of economics, a new theory of economics that deals with some important features uh, of uh, of economics. Uh, so, like uh, diffusion of innovation, economists have been very interested in diffusion of technologies. So new technologies, do they move, do they flow into a country or state or do they not? So they're they're classical data sets on the flow of technologies into countries. And countries vary tremendously in uh, whether they have modern medicine or whether they have modern this or modern that in terms of new technologies. And we show that uh, parasite stress uh, is a predictor, a strong predictor, and conservatism and liberalism. So the more conservative the country, the less innovations come in. They just don't like the new stuff, basically. It comes out of that. Uh, the more liberal the place, the more up-to-date technologically the, the country is, uh, the more liberal. And so that's an aspect. And also the, the wealth disparity. Is another big issue in economics. Why do countries vary in uh, so much in uh, how the wealth is distributed among people? Why do countries vary so much in in why uh, in property rights uh, and so forth? Who can have? Who can own property? Uh, why do countries vary so much in in, in these fundamental economic uh, parameters? Has been a big question since the beginning of economics and. Uh, so, what, basically, what's going on is, as conservatism in a region increases, then what is also increasing is uh, the attitude of, uh, you know, xenophobic. Uh, and with with uh, with uh, with conservatism, you have strong classism too. So, a view that some people are just better, more human than others—that's fundamentally part of conservatism and high-status people are good people, and low-status people are bad people, people, you know, people of out-groups are bad, and so forth. And it's fine to disenfranchise them. So uh, you get you get these tremendous wealth disparities uh, associated with uh, highly conservative places. And economists measure that as the Gini coefficient, G-I-N-I. They measure that every several years and publish data. On all the countries of the world, and how how wealth is distributed, and the more conservative the country, the greater the disparity in wealth, and that's justified in the conservative mind because you know these people at the top with the money are just better human beings than the others. That's fundamentally a part of conservatism and xenophobia and outgroup dislike and and so forth. So uh, we've done a lot with uh, with economics. Uh, and then governance too, uh, across countries of the world, has been of great interest to us. So, uh, political scientists are uh, very interested in how governance varies across countries. So, countries vary from highly democratic to highly autocratic across the world, and uh, political scientists have described that in detail. Uh, descriptive data on uh, how how democratic, said differently, how autocratic because these are on different, different poles, high, democ- high democracy is low autocracy. High autocracy is low democracy. Uh, these uh, measures for all the countries of the world. And we show that uh, the more conservative the country, the more autocratic the country is. The more liberal the country, the more democratic the country is. And political scientists have five measures of uh, democracy, uh, said differently, of autocracy across countries of the world, and they're very highly correlated, but they're stuff like, uh, uh, depending on the measure, the degree to which uh, certain parts of democracy are emphasized, like uh, how widespread is the voting privileges of people in a country, uh, how widespread is health care in a country, um, how about property rights, How can only the rich folks have property? Or can everybody own property? Those kinds of things are part of uh, democracy measures that political scientists have used. So we take all their measures and we show that they all are very strongly correlated with uh, collectivism, uh, more collectivism, less democracy, and very strongly correlated with infectious disease, more infectious disease, less democracy. So those kinds of things we've done. We've done a lot of yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so basically you've done a bunch of studies which allow for us Uh, to determine the arrow of causation because for example uh, people would tend to think that perhaps other factors like for example gdp and perhaps you you could also give us other examples of confounding factors that come into the picture and that people put forth to try to explain uh, several different uh, traits that people have in terms of their political preferences and personality and their in group, out group dynamics, and things like that. But I mean, you controlled for those other uh, political, cultural, and social factors, and the levels of pathogen exposure w- 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 that, that was still the factor that yes. had prevalence over okay. the others in terms of the effects that it had in explaining all of these uh, behavioral variables, correct? That's
1: correct. So yeah, basically that's a good point. So in the kind of comparative analysis we do, uh, you know, like across countries of the world or across states of the US, if we're looking at infectious disease in relation to some variable, or conservatism in relation to some variable, uh, we very carefully uh, look at the literature Uh, of scholarship in that area to see what scholars have thought is important in predicting like democracy, degree of democracy and so forth. And then we control statistically with standard analytical techniques, we control statistically for those things that uh, the scholars traditionally have thought were important. And show, when, when we do those controls, that uh, our, our theoretical variables of interest, parasites and, and conservatism, are very powerful predictors, even when those other things are removed from uh, having an effect by, by analysis. Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. OK, so let's talk a little bit more about personality traits now. Uh, Because, again, people could say that perhaps it is not really the exposure to certain levels of pathogens that make for for a certain prevalence of certain personality traits in a given area or a given country, but it would be the other way around, that it is because people have some personality traits that they then tend to deal with other people in a certain way, but again, you control for that, Uh, And there's a very high correlation between exposure to certain pathogens and to certain levels of pathogens in different areas in the world and the prevalence of certain personality traits. Uh, And by the way, uh, are those personality traits related primarily to extroversion, agreeableness, and openness to experience when it comes to the big five? Is that correct? Yes. Those are the three.
1: Those are the three um, that are predictable from conservatism and parasite stress, yeah. So as conservatism increases or in parasite stress increases, um, you get uh, less openness to new experiences, less. So as liberalism increases, you get more openness. And um, as con- as um, parasite stress increases, um, you get uh, less agreeableness, okay, and that's a that's a weird personality trait. Uh, we can talk about that. But then you also get uh, as infectious disease increases or conservatism increases, which is the same thing basically. Um, you get uh, less uh, 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 less extroversion, more introversion, and introversion is socially protective. So if you're introverted then uh, you're less uh, open to, ex- you know, contacting strangers and so forth. That's, that's what that's for, introverted. But, uh, but agreeableness, and the way, I mean, the, the, this Big Five thing, it was not erected. Uh, the Big, big Five uh, personality uh, taxonomy was not erected from evolutionary theory. It's not erected from knowledge of the design of people's minds. It was erected just analytically. So you take you take these measures of personality, and then you throw all that together and look at what things clump with the other things, you know, and you get five factors coming out of uh, of analysis. And agreeableness is a is an interesting one in that regard because what you expect on theoretical grounds when you think about the parasite stress theory is that. Conservatives are going to be very agreeable, agreeable with in-group. They're not going to be agreeable without group right? And liberals, however, are going to be more agreeable with uh, in-group and out-group. So agreeable, really, these personality things really need some, some work uh, to clean that, that kind of thing up. Extroversion, introversion is okay because it, 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 it works fine. And, uh, and openness to experiences and all, that's basically measuring neophobia, uh, or neophilia, degree of that, uh, that one's fine. Uh, but uh, really the parasite stress theory illuminates the uh, need for uh, much more thinking about the kinds of personality traits people have. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and what kinds of effects do we get Um, when you're talking about people that are part of the in-group? Is it also the case that perhaps when people live in environments uh, that promote uh, a higher number of infectious diseases, particularly from human origin, uh, that even people that are part of the same group also deal with each other differently i mean is it for example the case uh, that in a situation like that even if people are part of the same group that perhaps they uh, have less trust uh, there's less trust between those people of the same group and and other aspects like that
1: right those kind of details yes indeed i agree with you uh, I mean, it's going to affect if you live in an area of high infectious disease, then that will affect your, uh, social interactions, uh, within group people as well. I mean, you're going to avoid out group, definitely because of the, you have local immunity, but not distant immunity. And so, but at the same time, how, uh, you interact with, uh, in group members is going to be affected too, of course, uh. And you know more caution with in group members and that kind of thing. Yeah, so when people get sick, uh, they uh, they uh, tend to uh, you know be avoided and uh, by even by in group members. So yeah, that's there as well. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and talking about how uh, per- parasite stress affects culture, would you say that perhaps another way by which uh, it affects it is uh, because, for example, if people are exposed to other people that have uh, different behaviors, different habits, uh, different uh, cultural traditions, that it might work as a proxy for them to belonging to other groups.
1: Mm-hmm. As a cue that they uh, that there's a threat of foreigners there. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at a conservative group, everybody uh, there's, you know, conformity that's associated with conservatism, more conservative, the more they conform. So everybody thinks the same way. Everybody looks the same. Everybody follows the same rules and all. Uh, So any that's very uh, any kind of deviation from that is easy to detect, and uh, people will pick up on that and uh, and punish or ostracize the the person who's behaving in a, even a slightly different way, like being a little left-handed or something like that. <laughs> like, I'm left-handed. <laughs> yeah, and with their uh, colleagues did an analysis where they looked at handedness across countries of the world, there were like 79 countries where data Uh, There are about 200 countries in the world. So they had 79 countries where uh, researchers had measured uh, from good sampling handedness. And what they found was that uh, the more conservative the country, more parasites in the country, the fewer left-handed people there were. So there's incredible pressure to conform in terms of handedness in conservative countries. and uh, so you don't give me left-handers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes, yes. And perhaps uh, this is uh, really not a thing that people tend to associate with uh, being exposed to uh, environmental conditions that promote the development of infectious disease, right?
1: All right, right, sure. And and yeah, all, that's, all that is... Uh, outside the conscious realm, of course, of people, they just, and, and basically the way that behavioral immune system works is it overshoots. It it uh, it accepts a lot of false positives, as we say. That is, it exaggerates in interpreting cues of, of disease threat. And that's why you get these prejudices, uh, not only toward uh, not only toward people you know that look different talk different and so forth but prejudices uh, associated with conservatism of homophobia prejudices uh, against people that are overweight that are underweight all that's very strongly tied to conservatism and uh, in fact all the all the prejudices uh, are uh, are uh, associated with conservatism so and and I should add, too, that uh, somewhere in this discussion that the parasite stress theory of values is a scientific theory, and hence it doesn't judge people's values. Uh, we all have our values, and we judge based on our personal values, but the but the, but the science itself uh, makes no judgment of a person's values. Uh, it just gives you the causes of the values. It doesn't judge them. And it doesn't say that conservatives are more uh, are more moral than uh, liberals or vice versa. It doesn't have anything to say about that. The science itself, yeah.
0: Yes, that's a very interesting point, and I was just about to bring it up. I mean, when we're saying that certain groups of people tend to behave toward uh, out groups or even people from their own group in certain ways, but that perhaps sometimes they are more conservative or more liberal or more violent or less violent, yeah. uh, and things like that, we're not making uh, judgments here. We're just we're just describing how things are. And I mean, even I would say that if people are to pick on these descriptions uh, and say that, uh, this is a good thing or this is a bad thing that then they are committing the naturalistic fallacy because they are deriving moral values or moral judgments from scientific facts. Right.
1: right. Yeah. It's important to keep that in mind. And, uh, not to make the naturalistic fallacy to uh, to uh, deduce that uh, what is true in the world what is factual about the world gives you moral guidance yeah that's just not part of uh, not part of the program yeah yeah
0: okay so uh, another topic that we haven't yet discussed very much. Uh, today. That is, uh, so we've been talking about what happens with people's behavior in general when they live in places where they are more or less exposed to pathogens and infectious disease. But uh, this also depends on the origins of each infectious agent or infectious disease? Because, I mean, if they come from human sources, yeah. then the effect is much bigger than when they come from zoonic sources, that is, from other animals. Right. right? Absolutely.
1: That's, a, that's, an, that's an important point. I'm glad you brought that up. We've looked at that in great detail. Uh, the parasite stress theory of Bay is, is also we also call it the parasite stress theory of sociality because it's a general theory of social behavior. So, if you're xenophobic, you're behaving socially differently than if you're not xenophobic. If you're ethnocentric, you're behaving socially different and so forth. So, it's a general theory of social behavior. And, um, and, um, So let's see now. Your question was, again, oh, yeah, the kind of parasite. Right. So it's about human social interaction. Parasite stress theory it's about human social interaction and uh, contagion risk associated with human social interaction. So diseases of humans are divisible into two categories, basically. We can talk about them as zoonotic diseases, zoonotic, and these diseases. Uh, are are catchable from non-human animals only. So we get these diseases, these zoonotic diseases, and there are a lot of them, from livestock, from pets, from wildlife, and so forth. That's where those diseases come from. The other category of human infectious diseases is non-zoonotic, and we get those from humans. Get those from humans. We may also get them from wildlife in some cases, but we get them from humans too. So basically, you can break the uh, you can break the human infectious diseases down. And epidemiologists do this. You got the zoonotic, you only get from non-human animals. You got the uh, category of uh, that we get from humans, and in that category, you got human-specific. You only get them from humans, or you get them from humans and other animals. But anyway, you get, if you get them from humans, then that's what the parasite stress theory of values mainly talks about: how, in, how, how uh, levels of those, rates of those infectious diseases that we get specifically from humans, or get from other animals, but also from humans. But we get from humans uh, relate to value systems and these other variables we're talking about: personality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, uh, that's what we've done. We separate the diseases into these categories, and look uh, analytically at what is uh, how these diseases predict uh, human behavior and psychology. And we find that uh, we find that the diseases we get from people are the diseases that predict uh, value systems and governance and personality and so on. Not the diseases. Uh, that we get from non-human animals. Yeah, that's a very important point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that controls for all kinds of things. I mean, some people have said, well, you know, if you've got a lot of infectious diseases in an area, then basically you've got a lot of other kinds of problems too, right? People are poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all kinds of problems. So maybe it's that, that other stuff that's really causing uh, the value variation and non-infectious disease. But when you look specifically at the kinds of infectious diseases that the parasite stress theory of values is talking about uh, and focusing on, that is those we get from from humans, and show that those are the diseases that are predicted. The the kinds we don't get from humans don't predict these things. They don't predict these things. Um, Then that's very powerful. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and what is the main emotion that goes associated with, uh, with how we react to exposure to certain sources of infection or pathogens? Is it disgust mainly, or uh, can we also consider other things like fear? And I'm asking you this because I then have a follow-up, but if you could please tell us about that. Uh...
1: Follow-up is what? I missed something
0: there. Uh, uh, oh, oh be- because the follow-up I have for that is that. Uh, so we're talking here about, or we've... Talked in the last question about uh, exposure to pathogens uh, that have human origins or non-human origins that come from other animals, basically. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I wanted to ask you then that so we have certain uh, fears uh, to, uh, that are directed towards certain animals like snakes and spiders that seem to be innate or at least partially innate because as far as I know uh, there have been some studies done on chimpanzees uh, and other primates where uh, they have they seem to have an innate fear of snakes for example but to develop that fear they have to be exposed to an, uh, to another individual having a fearful reaction to yeah. a snake and and that doesn't really work if they see another individual having a fearful reaction to a flower For example, and that's how basically uh, scientists determine that the fear is partially innate. So I would like to ask you if it wouldn't make sense that since perhaps certain animals during our evolutionary history could have represented uh, a source of infection if fear could be another emotion that would already play a part in our avoiding certain uh, infectious sources that could right. perhaps that could perhaps also apply then to other groups of humans
1: let's yeah. say. well as you mentioned disgust is very fundamental to the behavioral immune system I and mean, that's a, that's the underlying uh, uh, underlying emotion that is varying, uh, and uh, you know, conservatives have more uh, disgust sensitivity. There's that's a that's there's been a lot of research on that. They're they're it, they're very easy to discuss. The more conservative a person is, the easier they are to discuss. So they have a high disgust sensitivity, um, and that's functional for them because that means that they're that helps. Protect them from uh, potential sources of contagion. Uh, but fear too. I mean, you know, you can get. Uh, I mean, the disgust. Uh, you, you get a little bit of disgust reaction, all the way to an extreme disgust reaction, where you get the uh, human-specific facial facial uh, expression of disgust. You know, a very strong reaction in the face. You can see. But then, fear should be a, should be part of this too, uh, but not a generalized fear. I mean, you can be fearful of, uh, you know, bad weather, uh, but uh, a tornado or something like that. But but, uh, but a kind of fear. But that hadn't been that hasn't been brought into the research empirically how fear may uh, may interact as a protective mechanism against infectious disease. Yeah. Independent of disgust. Yeah. Because, you know, when you get disgusted, then it may evoke fear toward whatever is disgusting you and you want to move back from it. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So I would also like to ask you uh, if it makes sense for us to think that perhaps we haven't really develop, developed an innate disgust. Toward certain uh, animal species, like, for example, the ones that we have domesticated since the advent of agriculture, because since we've only had agriculture and domesticated species for perhaps around uh, 10 or 12,000 years or something like that, that perhaps it is too new in our evolutionary history. For us to have uh, adapted to that in terms of uh, also feeling disgust toward certain animals. Be- because uh, And I'm asking you this also because uh, we know nowadays that certain diseases that really affected people uh, and that now we have a certain immunity to them, at least the peoples that, were, that lived in close quarters with certain animals like the pigs, the cows, and other animals like that, uh, that, that perhaps uh, since it is too recent in our evolutionary history, that might have been a reason why we haven't really developed, discussed, toward those animals, even though they have transmitted certain diseases to us? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that's complicated. I mean, you know, the pigs and the cows and all that provide benefits. You eat the meat, right? So it may be a benefit-cost kind of thing, even though. um, But uh, the time scale, too, is relatively recent. For domestication as well that's certainly a factor but then you have the vegetarians and vegans too you know what's going on with them <laughs> it's not they would say it's not a disgust uh reaction as to or maybe it is I mean you know do they get disgusted when they think about eating meat uh if so maybe that's uh, a bit of uh a specific response to domesticated kinds of animals, kind of meat. Uh, I don't know, it's complicated. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, okay, so let's go back to the relationship between stress, uh, parasite stress theory and philopatry. because I would like to ask you, since you talked about movements of People from one group to another. If parasite stress theory also predicts uh, how people move nowadays from, let's say, for example, one country to another or one region of a specific country to another. What we what
1: we've done with uh, the philopatry component is this: uh, we looked at uh, we looked at uh, what anthropologists call home range size for ethnographic societies in the in the anthropological record, and it's a data set of 339 uh, anthropological societies that pulled together, compiled, and with all kinds of variables measured in these by uh, uh, anthropologist by the name of Lou Binford long ago. So we, he had home range size on all these things. So we predicted that the more parasites in a uh, region where the uh, indigenous society lives, the smaller the home range, as kind of a as kind of a surrogate measure of dispersal. If it's a small home range, then the people aren't dispersing as much as if it's a big home range. And so we did that analysis and showed that it works. That is, the more parasites, the smaller the home range of the people. Uh, across these 339 indigenous societies. We did that. Then uh, we did another thing where we looked from the U.S. Census Bureau. They send out a, uh, every 10 years, they do a census over here in the United States. And they send, you're supposed to fill these, it's a pretty good sampling procedure. They kind of threaten you. They say you gotta fill it out and send it back. So it's a pretty decent sampling method. But there's one question on it that we focused on in the last census, which was, uh, have you moved from your state to another state since the last census? So that question of whether you've moved to another state uh, since the last census. And we predicted, of course, more movement, the more liberal the states were, or less movement, the more conservative the states were, the U.S. states. And that worked very well, too. Uh, So people are moving more in terms of at least between states. Um, so we did show in that analysis that, um, you know, for the 50 states of the U S that, uh, the more conservative, the state, the more people stay home. They don't move to, to other states. Uh, and the more said differently, the more liberal the states the more people, that's, that's one way we've done it. Um, and, um, let's see. So we did that, um, we did those things. And so, and there's some other hints in the uh, traditional psychological literature uh, that would support, uh, oh, I know, a really cool one. Uh, There was a guy named Carney who did a study. He went in, he was interested in uh, in, uh, this, not from the standpoint of the theory. He just had a sense that conservatives don't move much, move around much. And liberals do more. Uh, and I mean Mussolini. Go back to Mussolini too. Uh, he said he said the problem with liberals. <laughs> he hated liberals. He was very conservative. Of course. His problem. his, his fascist. Uh, it's as conservative as they get. Uh, the problem with liberals is that they move around a lot and they bring in diseases when they move. <laughs> they move around. And catch diseases out there and bring them back. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so Carney did this study where he went into the homes, had a big sample of people, conservatives and liberals, went into their homes and asked them about their traveling, Okay, uh, mm-hmm. traveling around the U.S. It was U.S. sample, or, or around the world, wherever, and uh, examined their homes for travel paraphernalia. So all kinds of things, you know, travel, uh, souvenirs and all that kind of stuff. And he showed the more conservative person, the less traveling they had done. And, um, and so that was kind of a cool study, too. So there's evidence uh, for the philopatry, certainly from various levels, but the individual level and the ethnographic societies and so forth and so on. So um, the, on, the, on the collectivism, uh, and parasite stress I didn't mention. I, I focused on across countries and across states in the U.S., but uh, an anthropologist, uh, Elizabeth Cashton, did a very interesting study. She went in the ethnographic record of anthropology and uh, uh, coded a uh, degree of collectivism across uh, societies there in the ethnographic record. I think she had 186 societies that she could code uh, degree of collectivism on and uh, then their parasite stress scores are available for all those ethnographic society locations from work that Bobby Lowe did and Elizabeth Cashton too and so uh, parasite stress predicted uh, uh, predicted uh, collectivism and for the ethnographic society as well it's not just U.S. states and across countries it works for ethnographic societies too so that's powerful comparative stuff yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so I would also like to ask you, uh, was it the case that in all of these studies that you've been talking about uh, people also controlled for... Uh, IQ, and I'm asking you this because one of the factors that go into uh, the level of IQ that people are able to reach also has to do with, uh, for example, if they are exposed to infectious disease that affects their neurodevelopment, then they might get uh, a lesser score on their IQ scale, let's say, uh, and and. I also want to ask you about this because it seems to me at least that IQ is highly correlated with uh, things like openness to experience at least in the aspect of being open to new ideas Uh, uh, and and so yes and the other factor would be that one the the fact that people uh, are, uh, are more open to novelty uh, and new ideas and things like that sure yeah that's uh that's a good uh, part
1: of this story actually uh, we did uh we did a lot a lot of research on iq variation iq uh has been a big topic in psychology for a long time and um and uh so trying to figure out how to measure it and measuring it across states across countries and so forth big big deal in psychology but why does it vary so much is is a question we were interested in why does it vary so much among individuals among groups among states among countries and so forth uh, so there were all these all these data uh, across states of the US and across countries of the world on IQ variation and we thought that what's going on potentially is that it does relate to infectious disease in that, uh, in that to, you know, to build a, to build a quality nervous system, big brain and so forth, which would promote IQ, uh, takes a lot of energy. And also your immune system is huge. Okay. It's huge. Uh, and it's going to be very costly as well to, to maintain. And we figured those two things would trade off. So under high infectious disease, you've got to make your a good immune system, uh, both classical and behavioral immune system. You've got to make that or you die under high infectious disease. And that's going to trade off with the energy and tissues that you have available to make a quality uh, uh, nervous system. So we anticipated that infectious disease levels across countries and across states would correlate with IQ. More infectious disease, lower IQ across countries and states. And so we tested that, and remarkably, the uh, the correlations were extremely high uh, between infectious disease and uh, IQ, or but you know conservatism and IQ. So the more the more infectious diseases, the lower the IQ. The more conservative, the lower the IQ. And that we think is due to the trade-off uh, with uh, with uh, between uh, making a good immune system and uh, uh, you know a good brain, basically. Um, but you know, it's it's like um, I mean, some have said, okay, and I think it's depending on the view. So if you look at if you take a liberal, take a liberal person, they just think that this conservative stuff, like what the Ku Klux Klan does and all that extreme conservatism, fascism, all that stuff, is just crazy. And these people aren't very smart. Okay. That's, that's, they just don't have sense enough to know better. That's, that's a common interpretation I've run into when I talk to liberals about this work. They just don't. And, but it's, it's not just that. Okay. Because xenophobia, the hate, dislike, avoidance of outgroup people is very strategic for these people. So it's not simply that uh, they have low IQ and therefore they hate people different from them, and that's all there is to it, you know? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's move on to talk about a more specific topic that is the one that I referred to at the very beginning of this interview that is, the differences between people that live in the southern United States and the northern Americans, let's say. So we've already talked about uh, things like conservatism and liberalism and how people, uh, and in terms of also philopatry and ethnocentrism and things like that. But uh, I would like to ask you if Uh, Parasite stress theory of values also does a better job than perhaps explanations that have been put forth by people like Dr. Richard Nisbet and others when trying to explain differences in terms of people resorting more or less to violence to solve social conflict and also perhaps levels of religiosity uh, and also uh, support for gun ownership and being against gun control, and other factors like that, that really differ between northern and southern states of the United States. Right. Yeah, that's
1: a topic we've uh, we've we've spent a lot of time on. Actually, the uh, culture of honor, as Nisbet <laughs> called it. It in, and in short. The culture of honor is just collectivism. It's conservatism, culture of honor, and um, this the you know the uh, the valuing and reverence really a reverence almost of in group people to the point where and you're tied to them. So conservatives uh, have a different conception. Let's start here. Have a different conception of self than do liberals. That's been known a long time in psychology. So the conservative self is uh, not an independent individual; it's an interdependent individual. So the conservative self sees self uh, strongly related to the other in-group members, so the extended family and so forth. It's not separable from that. the in- the, the The liberal self is an individual individualism, uh, the individual uh, a separate entity. Okay. That, that thinks on his or her own, uh, acts on his or her own, doesn't need permission from the in-group and so forth, whereas the conservative is tied in decision-making and thinking uh, to the in-group. It's an intellectual interdependence that the conservative has, whereas the liberal is intellectually independent. So if if you insult a conservative, you're simultaneously insulting that person's mother, father, grandfather, in-group, the whole thing. Because that person is part of all that and reveres all those people because of the strong social size associated with ethnocentrism. As a result, if you insult that person that way, that person's going to get mad. And that can escalate all the way to lethal violence. That's why, you get, that's why you get such high homicide rates in conservative places. It's not just the southern United States. If you look at homicide rates across countries of the world, they're correlated very strongly with parasites and conservatism, positively correlated. So the culture of honor, basically, this whole honor concept where you honor your family, you honor your in-group, and if, you're, if somebody disrespects you, uh, you take action against them. Uh, And you can escalate in that action and kill them, and so forth and so on. All that is uh, coming out of conservatism, and uh, so we look at we looked. uh, So Nisbet, I mean they they very uh, they very uh, nicely show Nisbet and colleagues have shown that. the the southern United States is has very high culture of honor. They show that very well, uh, but it's not specific to the United States. It's the U.S. South. It's it's wherever there's wherever there's uh, conservatism. We show and um, and uh, and so we what we looked at. One thing we we did. Uh, they Nisbet and uh, colleagues have emphasized how the culture of honor. Uh, is associated with high homicide rates, especially male-male homicide. And um, so we looked at homicide data across states. We did that analysis first, and we went across nationally too. But across states of the U.S., the parasite stress, turns out, is the best predictor of rates of homicide across the states in the United States, best known predictor. Prior to our work, the best predictor was the Gini coefficient, in a state, so the degree of wealth disparity, which makes a lot of sense. So if wealth's disparate, then you got a lot of these disenfranchised males who are in fast track, and they're taking a lot of risk and so forth, and they engage in more violence, and you get escalated violence all the way to murder. So genie is a factor, but we partial out Gini and show that uh, parasite stress is the best predictor of homicide rates across states in the United States. So it's a serious... Uh, it's a serious uh, uh, matter in homicide research now. You know, infectious disease and conservatism, how that impacts uh, homicide rates, and it's basically that if you dis, if you disrespect a conservative man, you are disrespecting his granddaddy, his great granddaddy, his uncles, his sisters, his mama, everybody, and all his friends, and that's that, and that's why he gets so damn mad. I grew up in the in the old South, uh, in uh, the heart of Dixie, Alabama, and mm-hmm. uh, culture of honor was everywhere. It was fa- they fa- those people fascinated me, and uh, that's one thing I think that that uh, led me to uh, this research on values, trying to figure out how those people got in that shape down there. because I'd often tell them, "What is wrong with you people?" And uh, finally, I just started observing them, studying them. <laughs> yeah. So that's what the culture of honor is all about. And I mean, th- there's also this family honor component too, where uh, where, uh, where it, p- it pertains to the female honor aspect. Female honor in conservative cultures is uh, to protect the jewels and do what daddy says. And so daddy owns you in a conservative uh, place. Daddy owns the girls, and then that ownership is passed to the husband when at marriage uh, from daddy. But the girl is supposed to obey daddy's rules and and so forth and and, uh, not engage in any sexual behavior. If she violates that, then she dishonors daddy and the the family. And you get these extreme cases where, uh, you know, the girl is killed and so forth in very conservative places. Uh, because of her dishonoring of the family, that level of of honor, uh, that type of honor too, is very much uh, associated with conservatism. And uh, so we we looked at all the homicide stuff across nationally, across states in the U.S. and everything, everything works beautifully in light of uh, what we're talking about here. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've also asked you about levels of religiosity, but perhaps it's even more interesting to get more specific here and talk about specific contents in terms of directing uh, people's morality and people's behavior when dealing with people from in-group and out-group and things like that, that uh, get uh, or that creep in into many religions. So, for example, uh, I, I think that it is very interesting that there are a lot of religious rituals that use water and water is associated with something that that, that cleans, that rids people of infections and contamination and things like that. Uh, And perhaps there are a lot of rituals that are associated also with purity and with uh, separating categories of peoples and things like that. Uh, And also, also, since we're talking about exposure to infection, uh, there there's a lot that goes into religion that has to do with uh, sexual behavior and and avoiding being promiscuous and other stuff like that. So that also comes uh, from uh, parasite stress. Right? Yes, indeed.
1: Uh, let, we have looked uh, looked in detail at. Uh, a couple of different aspects of uh, the religion issue. One is, uh, w- uh, religion scholars measure uh, degree of religiosity, and so religious commitment and participation of people. It varies tremendously. Of course, it varies, varies uh, across individuals. But it also varies across regions of the world, states of the United States, and so forth. And religion scholars have been very interested in measuring this religiosity, religious commitment, and and participation. There are data in the literature on uh, all the countries of the world, the states of the United States, and so forth, are religion scholars. And we figured that uh, religiosity as a component of conservatism would be predictable from the parasite stress theory. So degree of uh, degree, you know, parasite stress uh, as that increases, you should get more religiosity, and we tested that against the data in the literature provided by uh, religion scholars that they've accumulated there, and showed that that is true. That is more the more uh, infectious disease, the more religious people are, both across countries of the world, across states of the U.S. And uh, religion, what it does is. Uh, It serves the ethnocentric part, so you get the in-group, in-group focus associated with religion. And the more religious, the more in-group focus and less out-group interaction there is. And it also gives a boundary. I mean, religions are defined by religion scholars as a group over here believes in a particular god, and this group over here believes in a different kind of god. And that's a significant difference to the people. They differ in this belief, so it's it creates a boundary. Religion does, and that's a xenophobic. That serves the xenophobic aspect of disease, uh, disease worry, and, and avoidance, and so forth. So, yeah, we showed. Uh, I mean, this provided a new theory of religion. It's it's parasite based, basically, and, and value based, and that's one thing we did with religion. And the other thing was, uh, religious scholars have been interested in why. Uh, Regions of the world vary so much in number of religions. So, if you look at uh, some countries of the world, you'd have you know hundreds of religions in the country. Other country, ten religions, like Norway and Sweden and so forth. They don't have many religions, <laughs> <laughs> but but if you go down to the equator, uh, you got lots and lots of religions in those countries. And most of these religions. Most people have never heard of. You'd have to be a religion scholar to even hear of. They're they're minor religions, but very important to the people that have them, of course, even though they're minor in terms of number of participants. Uh, But religion scholars have uh, tabulated the number of religions uh, per country, and we took those data and showed that... uh, the more parasites in a region, or the more conservatism in a region, uh, the more uh, religions you find. And that's an aspect of the theory. That uh, pattern is an aspect of the theory, parasite stress theory we haven't talked about, which is that it uh, it's a theory that generates uh, new cultures. So basically, if you have a, a culture in a geographic region because of the xenophobia, ethnocentrism, and philopatry, you get a localization uh, and a fractionation. Within, that, within the big culture, you get a fractionation, and you get boundaries and so forth, and you get new cultures arising. That so the parasite stress theory uh, is a theory of the genesis of new cultures. And we measured, we, we looked at that aspect of the theory by looking at the number of religions uh, across countries of the world and the number of languages across countries of the world. Linguists have been interested in that, too. Why some countries have so many languages and other countries don't have many languages. And uh, we showed that uh, parasite stress uh, and conservatism predicts the number of religions and the number of uh, uh, languages across countries of the world. Yeah. So that's going on uh, out there, too. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about how parasite stress theory of values also might help us explain certain historical phenomena uh, and things like that. So I would like to ask you if you think or if there's evidence that perhaps... Uh, The fact that the Inquisition was created after those several waves of bubonic plague that went through Europe uh, and that really wiped out a lot of people in certain places. It was a third of the population. In others, I think it was two thirds even, so really a lot of of people. Uh, that, That perhaps... Uh, the, because the the Inquisition seems to have been developed r- right after that period the, uh, that perhaps because people were exposed a lot to infectious disease that it could explain uh, the timeline there and perhaps yeah. why certain religious practice religious practices followed up from those uh, events in Europe. Yeah, oh yeah, very much so. Uh, these uh,
1: these uh, events, uh, you know, major events in history, the Inquisition, the Enlightenment, the Cultural Revolution in the West in the 60s, all those kinds of things, uh, liberalization of values in the 60s in the West, all that stuff has been very interesting to us. And uh, and uh, we can start picking away at that. Um, the easiest one to talk about in detail, because it's more recent and we know more about it, is the uh, cultural revolution in the West in the 1960s. And then we'll go to the Enlightenment and uh, Inquisition. Go back back in time. <laughs> but the cultural revolution in the 60s and, and 70s. Uh, uh, in the West is, uh, has attracted a lot of attention from historians because God, all of a sudden people got liberal. (laughs) In in general, people, people got liberal. They got, you know, against the war, against government, uh, free love, all that kind of stuff. Sexual, sexual attitudes were liberalized and general attitudes were liberalized. You had the feminist movement occurring in the sixties and seventies, female power, um, racial, uh, uh, minorities uh, were, uh, began to be viewed more positively. All the, all the uh, disenfranchised groups, homosexuals, began to come out of the closet and so forth. I mean, a tremendous social revolution occurred in the 60s, specifically in the West. So what in the heck went on? Well, the uh, historians say that um, it, well people's values were liberalized. Right, but we ask why were people's values liberalized back then, and all of a sudden, and uh, the the story we tell about that is uh, from infectious disease, of course, and and change of values accordingly. So if you start with start with so this so you really got the liberalization in young in the people in young people like university age, college age, uh, high school age, those kinds of people, young people, young adults uh, in the 60s, rather than the parents of those people. And um, so it was, it was something that went on prior to these people's upbringing, right? A generation or two before. So if you start looking at that, there's a lot known about um, about health issues, of uh, health interventions in the West. And uh, you start off with chlorinated water, 1920. So add a little bit of chlorine to the water, and you kill basically all the infectious disease. And that spread very rapidly throughout the West. And this was not happening outside the West. So that's 1920s, got that. Also in the 20s, there were were laws uh, that came along for garbage disposal. For the first time, sewage disposal, uh, a lot more indoor toilets, hooked into the sewer system. The toilets, Uh, food handling laws came along first in the 1920s, and so that was a tremendous health improvement, sanitation. And then uh, you go go to the jump up to the 1940s. And you have child vaccination programs that started widespread in the West. Uh, you also have antibiotics coming out right at right at the end of World War II, 1945, good antibiotics. There were some antibiotics before that, but they weren't very good. And uh, the side effects were about as bad as the diseases, uh, like with the sulfur drugs and so forth. But real good antibiotics, uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics, came out in 1945. Also, you had uh, fluoridated water coming in 1945, too. Fluoridated water is very protective against a whole laundry list of mouth diseases. It not only reduces uh, tooth cavities, but to put a little fluoride in the water, you, you protect people from lots of mouth diseases. So that was 1945. Then also, uh, in 1945, you had good uh, insecticides coming along. All this is Western improvement. coming out of science, uh, insecticides, DDT and other hydrocarbons, uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons, and various other kinds of uh, pesticides that worked against vectors, especially mosquitoes. About 1930, about 1930s, uh, people began to put screens on their windows over here in the West keep out mosquitoes. So that reduced malaria, too. And malaria was basically controlled by mid-40s, mid-40s, 50s, oh, in the West. And um, so all these health interventions were going on in beginning in the 20s through the 40s. And then lo and behold, you got these young adults that were raised in a relatively disease-free environment compared to what uh, had been the case before uh who were liberals so we use that as a very very strong case for uh, for uh infectious disease being really important in uh, the social revolution and you know the sexual revolution was part of that too and uh, the sexual revolution so a, a liberalization of uh sexual attitudes and all we've done some stuff on on uh sexual uh attitudes across countries and that correlates of course with liberalism more liberalism the more openness to sexual behavior so that's a good case where you can tie you know this all this evidence on health interventions to a major cultural change something like that must have been going on with the enlightenment and the other direction in terms of infectious disease, as you mentioned, for the Inquisition. So yeah, lots and lots of bubonic plague and associated misery with that. But I mean, if you got a lot of bubonic plague, you got a lot of other diseases too. It wasn't just bubonic plague. It was it was high levels of lots of infectious diseases. Bubonic plague is the most famous because it kills so many people, but, uh, and you know, and so dramatically uh, killed these people. Uh, but uh, there were other infectious diseases, too, to get that high degree of conservatism that characterized the, characterizes the Catholic Church uh, in the Inquisition, where, I mean, that's just extreme neophobia. I mean, you know, her, that was that was against heretics, okay? Anybody that speaks negatively about the Church will kill you, basically. Um and uh, that's just neophobia. That's an expression of neophobia, which is which is extreme conservatism. Yeah. And with the Enlightenment, uh, with the Enlightenment, uh, what you've got. I mean, first of all, it's important to realize that these these liberal things, uh, the Enlightenment, uh, the Glorious Revolution, those kinds of things going on at the same time, scientific revolution. Uh, all that occurred at high latitudes didn't occur at the equator okay, you're not going to get a uh, you're not going to get a scientific revolution at the equator still or or an enlightenment at the equator that's that's high latitude and and that that that's uh, all else equal you know you got fewer parasites though higher at the latitude so parasites like it wet and warm and so they do better at at uh, Low latitudes than high. So, all these, all these things. Uh, but the details of the Enlightenment, and so forth, have not been have not been looked at. And I, ma- I imagine. I mean, if you look at just you know, if you put in, if you put, if you if you Google, uh, in the Enlightenment and sanitation, mm-hmm. what you see is the beginning of uh, concern that people had about getting getting. Uh, getting human waste piped out of the city, okay? They put in some pipes and stuff. So you're beginning to get um, an effort in sanitation that um, I think, you know, if, if some historians would would uh, take a look at that, they would find that uh, the Enlightenment can be explained just like the cultural revolution of the 60s in the West. It's a simple uh, disease disease situation, yeah, emancipation from disease, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, so I think that this is a very important discussion because, I mean, people uh, tend to think that it is values that cause people's behavior, but, but perhaps they don't tend to... Uh, question uh, where those values come from Uh, and perhaps uh, there's another line of causation something something that comes prior to the change to the changing of values uh, and that in this case uh, it is parasite stress and in other cases it might be other uh, environmental aspects but I mean perhaps people tend to focus too much on uh, purely mental things and very little on environmental circumstances, at least a lot of the time.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you go through all of our evidence, you, you must, uh, if you're objective, you're going to be, you're going to see uh, that parasites are playing a much greater role than uh, we knew before. In explaining in values. And we certainly haven't uh, proposed that parasites are the only thing. There could be other things affecting values, but uh, we think parasites have been overlooked and uh, need to be very much uh, in the minds of uh, people who are interested in values, what the causes of values are. And, you know, not only people who are interested in the causes of values from a scholarly point of view, but people who are interested in values from a humanitarian point of view. Uh That, uh, you know, our evidence says that if you want to make people more egalitarian, make them more liberal, make them less prejudiced, then uh, you need to focus on emancipating people from parasites. And then you will begin to get people that grow up and uh, are more uh, liberal minded and open to uh, and less prejudice and so forth.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's just tackle one last question before we finish the conversation here, uh, that I think it's also a very interesting one, and it is not uh, particularly focused on humans, but in all animal species in general that has to do with this. So, uh, again, about parasite stress. Uh, Would you say that this is another factor that is the levels of exposure to infectious sources and pathogens and parasites, that this is another factor that we have to take into account uh, in explaining, for example, uh, how... Uh, two different groups of the same species uh, get separated and then perhaps develop philopatry and then eventually over time they end up speciating?
1: Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. That's that's part of our research actually, to look at the role of uh, infectious disease in creating new species. I mentioned that uh, we think infectious disease is creating new culture. So you got this culture in one region, and you get, in, if, if that region is a high infectious disease region, then the infectious diseases, through their effects on values, will fractionate the original culture to the point where you get new cultures arising. It, we think it works the same way, basically with uh, creating new species and explaining the uh, great variation in species numbers across the world. So ecologists have known, biologists have known a long time, that there are a hell of a lot more species in the tropics than in temperate zones. And they've thought about why that is and all that kind of stuff, all kinds of crazy ideas. But basically, uh, if you put the disease model into the into the picture, then I think that's very... Uh, very nicely explains that because what happens if you got a species over a, a geographic range, and that geographic range is in an area of high infectious disease, you get uh, you get values in those species that are analogs of the human values we've talked about that are analogs, and it, there's a lot of uh, behavioral ecologists are looking at personality and. In uh, fish and birds and all the insects and so forth, and finding some interesting stuff that uh, that looks like these personality traits are analogs, really, of uh, the kinds of uh, behaviors you see with associated with human values. So, uh, philopatry and uh, openness and uh, aggressiveness and uh, uh, shyness and those kinds of things, introversion. Uh, you got that in fish and insects and and. Mammals and so forth, you know. So, um, so basically, under high infectious disease, you get this original species range fractionating, and uh, uh, and you know, uh, then you get genetic discontinuities between these groups, all the way to reproductive isolation. Then you have new species, which explains, we feel, the uh, strong uh, latitudinal correlation in species number. There's another there's another pattern in ecology that's been known a long time too, which is that uh, that that species ranges are smaller in the tropics than in temperate zones. So that's a, that's like that's comparable to our study I mentioned earlier in uh, indigenous societies where you get a small home range under high infectious disease. And and that's a philopatry kind of thing. So you get smaller ranges in these tropical species just because uh, they don't move as much, not as much dispersion. So we call this uh, the speciation part of this story that we're talking about. We call that the parasite-driven wedge model of speciation, a new model of speciation.
0: Okay. parasites. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Very well. So, Dr. Farnil, it was again really a pleasure to have you on the show. I think we we've really got the opportunity here to break down. All of the aspects that yeah. are associated with parasite stress theory of values. Uh, and so, uh, and perhaps, I mean, perhaps in the future, we could do uh, another interview, but, but then uh, perhaps more focused. Uh, on another aspect of your work that has to do with sex differences in humans, but since I've already had on the show people like Dr. Uh, David Buss, Richard Leap, and others with whom I talked specifically about that, but perhaps with you, we could talk about it more from, let's say, a phylogenetic standpoint and a comparative biological slash psychological ecological okay. standpoint okay. okay well let's keep that in mind then
1: yeah
0: mm-hmm. okay okay so dr thornhill again t- thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show it was thank really a pleasure i enjoyed it very much bye-bye Hi everybody, thank you a lot for watching this interview until the end and also by the way for coming to my channel. Uh, As you might have noticed I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep this channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even if just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, and Hans Fredrik Sunda. Thank you for all.